Welcome to the Contracting Officer Podcast. It's not just for contracting officers. If you work anywhere in the government acquisition world, this podcast is for you. Whether you work for government or industry, we're here to help you understand a little more about how the other side thinks. This episode is brought to you by ProPricer, the number one proposal pricing and cost analysis software used by federal agencies and small to large government contractors. Learn more by visiting ProPricer.com slash podcast. Cost proposal analysis usually involves days or weeks of painful, time-consuming data manipulation. Dealing with complex spreadsheets and redundant data entry just to evaluate contractor price proposals, it just doesn't cut it anymore. ProPricer Government Edition redefines the cost proposal analysis function by reducing redundant efforts and increasing the efficiency of the acquisition process so you can get more done. As as a contracting officer, there were days when the contractor had X price and I had Y price, and I figured out there's something wrong in my spreadsheet. So here I am on a Saturday, sitting at work, trying to figure out what is wrong with that formula. ProPricer fixes that problem. If you need a more efficient means of evaluating contractor pricing data to make sound contract award decisions, visit ProPricer.com slash podcast to learn more or request a demonstration. Today's episode is about proposal pricing in the government world. This is a real top-level overview. We'll dive deeper into pricing in other episodes. Today, we're just going to cover the basic components that make up your cost proposal. We also discuss why the government needs to see the buildup and all the details that go into that cost. Okay, let's get started. One of the common themes of the podcast is why is it so difficult? Why are things harder? Why are there so many rules when you're dealing with the government versus the commercial industry? And, And pricing is somewhere where that really shows up submitting a proposal and and presenting your price to the government and and it really i would say it's actually one of the most obvious places of how different it is because you can see that the amount of detail you got to put into a proposal as a contracting officer i have the right to all of this back cost data for from your company and you would never think to ask for that in the private sector because it's I'm gonna say it's proprietary. Yeah, right? no one would ever share that kind of information. Exactly. So that- Tesla Tesla will never give you that information, sorry. <laughs> So that's why this is a great topic today. Today we're going to talk – this is kind of a pricing primer. This is the basics of what goes into a government cost proposal and why. Before we get started, it's worth saying a little thanks. Yeah, This time it's another iTunes review. So uh, thank you to – it it says one improvement needed. That's their handle. (laughs) That's That's the username. Which is – I appreciate It's like a very – their mindset is all about uh, improvement. This one's a five-star review and it says – if you're in the government contracting field or want to be involved in the industry, this is the best podcast. So thanks for that. And then <laughs> I like that out of the gate. It says, it's loaded with information that we, you would take years of hands-on experience to accumulate, which again, thank you for that. And this is, I definitely recommend that anyone who is curious about the government proposals, technical information, or simply trying to get an edge on their competition. So uh, that's it, super it, nice. They didn't say what the one improvement needed was. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll hear back from <laughs> Send me an email. That's right. We'll see what it is. All right, back to pricing. Why are we talking about pricing? Because in the government world, it's not just it's not just pricing. This is cost proposals. So in the commercial world, you might provide a proposal or quote with a single price for a good or service. Top line. You may you may itemize pricing for goods or services. So you may show labor or you may be showing an hourly rate or you may show uh line items for different types of goods that you're providing, not just a total price for the the whole shebang. But in the government world, depending on what's being acquired, 
and the contract type and all those other variables that we babble about on this podcast. You may have to provide details of every element of cost that's included in your price. The entire buildup that's used to say, here's the price that I will sell this to you for. And, wow. And, and real, yeah, it's great. And, and it's crazy. And why this is so different is that, in the, remember, in the commercial market, competition, the assumption, if it's a competitive action, the, the market's already decided that this is what it goes for. It's been exposed to competition that, that all that stuff's figured out, right? But even if it's non-competitive, i.e. you're buying like you're buying an iPhone, you're buying a Tesla, all the things we talk about where the, the company sets the price. Well, that's a value-based price, which again, you don't get to see their cost data. Well, a value-based price on the government side, I have to be able to determine it's fair and reasonable. So in other words, if I go to if I make a the justification and approval to buy a Tesla for some somebody in the government. I got to determine that's fair and reasonable, which means that you know, Tesla's got to give me their cost data, which they're not going to do that. But you see how insane this feels. It's like, wait a minute. So if you're not used to how this stuff works, it just it it feels like you're 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 looking behind the curtain when nobody usually gets to see behind the curtain. Yeah. And in the government, they always have the right to see. Two things the I love about what you're saying there. First, you said an iPhone is non-competitive, which is funny. I think that Samsung and I think <laughs> there's people that would argue that it's very competitive. You know but what, your right. point is that iPhone, especially when they first came out, had a there's a huge price premium for it. Like there's competition amongst all of the other mobile devices. You can't really call them phones anymore. But Apple had set themselves aside where you had to decide that you were going to pay more for that product. So it it, it was almost in a class of itself and and without competition. But that price was based on what you would pay for it. Not based on what competitors were offering, because competitors were offering other mobile devices for far less. The other thing that I, I like is that you know you talked about Tesla might have to provide you all of the cost data uh, to in order for you to buy a car and say it's fair and reasonable, and that could happen depending on the type of acquisition. If if you were actually buying cars and comparing features and all that, you might actually just if it's co- truly competitive, you might just be comparing prices without all of the details. But it's uh, this is why this government stuff is hard. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. When do you need those details and when don't you? And just like that, we complicated it. <laughs> <That's like laughs> a, a simple concept right out of the gate here, and we're already you know kind of showing how complex this stuff is. Speaking of complex, it's FAR time. Let's Yay! talk about FAR time. There's no specific place in the FAR that it talks about how to build a price proposal. That's just not part of it. There's lots of places where it talks about what costs are uh, allowable and unallowable. That's FAR Part 31, and we have a whole podcast about that. There's lots of places where it talks about fair and reasonable price, blah, blah, blah. But FAR 15, Contracting by Negotiation, sets the stage for what we're talking about today. So 15404-1C is cost analysis. And I'll, I'll keep this to a minimum. C1, it says, cost analysis is the review and evaluation of any of the separate cost elements and profit or fee in an offer or contractor's proposal as needed to determine a fair and reasonable price or to determine cost realism. And then down, uh, let's see, 4041C2, little i, D. (laughs) (laughs) You said complicated. D is the application of audited or negotiated indirect cost rates, labor rates, or the cost of money or other factors. And that's talking about things that you may need in order to ensure a fair and reasonable price. So you may need to know 
audited or negotiated indirect cost rates, labor rates, and other factors. The other factors is where it gets really complex. And really what this comes down to is it's verification of your cost data. That's what a lot of the stuff, a lot of the discussion in here is that whole concept of you have to verify what these costs really yeah. are. That's you, the evaluation. The evaluation is leading to do we believe you or not? Right. Here's my cost, <laughs> and here's how I prove that's really what the cost is. There it's, you go. It's tough. And it, it, it's very, very complex. We had a separate podcast on allowable and unallowable costs in FAR Part 31, and there's over 60 definitions of different types of cost elements in there some of the words used i don't want to scare you but some of the words used actuarial gain and loss intangible capital asset standard cost standard cost sounds really innocuous doesn't mean the same thing here as it does in english shocking yeah before we leave the far there's one more section i want to read 31201-1 is composition of total cost and and 201-1a describes what goes into the the total cost that that makes up a cost proposal for a government acquisition. It says the total cost, including standard costs, there's that word, standard costs properly adjusted for applicable variances of a contract is the sum of the direct and indirect costs allocable to the contract incurred or to be incurred plus any allocable cost of money less any allocable credits. In ascertaining... What constitutes a cost? In <laughs> ascertaining what constitutes a cost, any generally accepted method of determining or estimating cost that is equitable and is consistently applied may be used. And what that means is, if you are following generally accepted accounting principles and you're collecting costs in a manner consistent with cost accounting standards, that's fine as long as you say this is how we're going to do it. And then you do it that way. You can't just change the way that that you determine or estimate costs for every proposal to make it better for you. You have to pick a way and say, this is the way we're going to do it, and then use that every time. And, and while this, this is probably the most reading you've done in a while on, on the podcast, <laughs> but, but in a nutshell, this is probably the closest thing you'll find to this is what you should expect to have to include in your, in your uh, cost proposal. All of, and it, it's interesting how it even talks about costs that are incurred or to be incurred. I mean, it's it, it's very comprehensive. And so this in a, the reason this is worth talking about, or for that matter, worth reading, is that when you when you look at the whole picture, you realize, wow, there's no wonder this is complicated. Because basically, it says every cost you have, you think you might have, or could possibly be related with this contract in any way, <laughs> you're responsible for including it. Yeah. Which is yeah, <laughs> that sounds easy. <laughs> Let's talk time zones. Pricing is in the RFP zone. This is where you actually create your price proposal. And it's in, then it's in the source selection zone where the government has to evaluate that price proposal. And if you go to discussions and submit final proposal revisions, you may get to reprice and they may get to reevaluate. And, and one thing I'll add is the execution zones, although it doesn't really jump out from the, from the pricing proposal perspective, right? But performance zone, you're living through – how close was your guess? <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you got it wrong, that's where you'll find out is in the performance zone. And, and both sides feel that because you may not have enough funding. You may have, you know, you have to do equitable adjustments. You may just right. have to do all. There's so understand that that the performance zone is where a lot of this comes up. And I mean, I would actually say that this is something to review in the honeymoon zone to make sure everybody understands the implication of all of the pricing elements that went into a cost type contract. Because, for example, it, I'm raising my hand here. When I sat down at the kickoff meeting for my first cost type contract. 
I wasn't the pricer that evaluated it, right? And there's there are things that came up during that that honeymoon zone that I thought, wow, I good thing we talked about that. Because mm-hmm. it's it's different. It's it, the, the performance is going to be different too. So let's let's not forget that side. All right, let's talk about some of the cost elements that actually go into a, pr- a cost proposal. I almost said price proposal, but price is different. Price is where you just submit, hey, here's what I will sell this to you for. Cost is what we're talking about today. So the first thing that's usually included is direct labor costs. And by direct labor, I mean the actual salary of an employee, or if you have a large company with lots of people, you may have approved pools of similar, of like employees, like analyst one, analyst two, analyst three. There's a hundred people in each of those categories that meet certain education and experience requirements. And you just kind of average all of their salaries together to make it a little bit easier to do. You have to be prepared to demonstrate what those actual salaries are. So we're talking payroll records or pay stubs for those people, or you may have to show the calculations of how all of those employees' actual salaries build into these pools that you've created. Sounds easy. Yeah. <laughs> that, that actually is easy. The tricky parts is what we're getting to, the indirect costs. So direct cost is, the, is that, that direct labor. Those people, you're paying them this. The indirect cost is the hard part. So overhead is the, the next category we'll talk about. Overhead... We're talking things like fringe benefits. So this is the health insurance, which is a a joy to talk about these days. We're talking about support functions, other people that don't charge direct to the contract, but are required like a human resources person. Or a contract administrator. Or a contract administrator, yeah. Another class of indirect expenses is general and administrative expenses. And these are the kinds of things that it costs a company to do business. So this could be the, the paper for your copier or the copier itself may be a general administrative cost. And the difference is, is it used for just your contract or is it used for all of your contracts and all the activities for your company? Right. So the overhead, the general administrative expenses are things that support everybody. I mean, they may spend a person, a human resources person may spend a minute working with a person that only supports a certain contract, but overall that person supports all of the people working all of the contracts. That's a great way to describe it. The next cost elements that we'll talk about are are other direct costs, and these are things like materials, things you buy to perform the requirements of the contract. But even those may fall into general administrative. So a computer that a contract administrator uses to work on all of the contracts across the whole company, that's a general administrative or an overhead type expense. That's indirect. A computer that is required for a software developer – to develop only for this contract may be a direct charge to the contract. Either way, you have to explain those type of costs. Travel, you have to be prepared to, if you're going to travel in support of this government contract, specifically like to go install something or to go to a meeting, you're going to have to provide details of airline costs, rental car costs, uh, per diem, which you know that that's your that's your food, and instead of having actual receipts, the government has lumped it into prices for different cities to make it easier than than having everyone collect all those receipts and have them have to look at all those receipts. But it's like a whole but, other podcast, right? It is, it is. But each one of those elements, you have to explain. Here's a screenshot from Travelocity. This is where I got the quote for this this flight. And, and interestingly enough, other direct costs, it's like a bucket for everything else because it's not defined. 
in in Farth Part Thirty One or in Far Part Two. So basically, if it's not in one of the other ones you just mentioned, ODCs we're not we're not saying it's limited to those two. It's lots of different things that you say. Okay, this is a cost of the contract, but it's direct to this contract. This contract is creating this cost, which means you've got to prove it in context of this contract. Right. Next thing we're going to talk about real quick is subcontracts. If you have subcontracts, if there are other government contractors that are on your team, in your cost proposal, in order to support their prices, you may need to provide their proposal. The subcontractor's proposal to you, the prime contractor, may become a part of your proposal to the government. You may have to provide an analysis of that subcontractor's price to show that you've determined it to be fair and reasonable, just like you're the government. You have to be prepared that all of these things go into a cost proposal for a government acquisition. And funny enough, on the subcontracts, there's a whole FAR part for that, it's, uh, FAR part 44. And it deals with things like a contractor purchasing system review, meaning that like your contractor, you're buying things from the subcontractors. Well, how do we know that system is is appropriate and works and gets us fair and reasonable prices? Again, it's a whole separate part of the FAR. So subcontracts is is its own art. <laughs> it's an art in order to get to the art of building a price proposal. Exactly. All right, last common element of your price to the government. You've built up – you've shown them all of the details between all the things that, that are going to be costs that are applied to this contract. Last thing is profit. You have to disclose how much profit you're going to make on this effort. Which is open to judgment <laughs> through a whole lot of other processes that we will talk about on another podcast. There's way too many potential cost elements in a, in a cost proposal to cover in, in one podcast. But I want to quickly run through some of the other things that you may hear about. If, if, you, if you're creating a huge proposal that covers multiple years, you may have to talk about escalation of direct labor rates and escalation of your indirect rates. You know, Prices tend to go up over time. You may also have to give provide a basis of estimate for the cost that you're proposing. If you're laying out all these hours, you may have to actually support them. Are you basing them on historical costs or a learning curve or complexity factors or your expert judgment? There's always that unallowable and allowable costs conversation. What is allowed to go into your cost buildups? We did a whole episode on that already. I've touched on some of the accounting issues. You better have some smart cost accounting people around if you're going to be required to build massive proposals that require you to support all of these detailed indirect costs. And I think it's very important to understand that you have to explain all of this crap to the government. How did you build this? Where did all this stuff come from? So you're probably going to have to write a cost narrative, which could be a giant volume that steps through where all these costs came from, what your standard cost procedures are, how you build these things up. It's a big part of the proposal process that's completely separate from the technical part, completely separate from here's why you should award to us, we should win, we have the best stuff that you need, it meets all the requirements, all that stuff. The the cost narrative, the, the cost part of a proposal may be even bigger, may, may be more pages than all the rest of it. And it's funny for as long-winded as I am, uh, it's, this is an example of you know, you're doing a lot of the talking because you have more experience with this stuff specifically, particularly on the industry side. In fact, at Skyway, 
we have so much experience on the on the other parts that we actually brought on a team members specifically for this skill set. You know, they understand how, all the pricing pieces. They understand how to actually build up a cost narrative, and so that that filled a gap for us because this is, this is a different skill. And so we actually brought in a different person to fill that gap for yeah. our, our clients. It's hard to be a generalist and have a lot of depth in pricing just because there's so much to it. All right, let's move on to our usual. Why should the government care? Why should industry care? Why is this important to each side? The government should care, should understand anyway, that in order to justify a fair and reasonable price, you have to get enough cost and pricing data to understand that, but hopefully not too much. And how do you get that data? When the government asks for cost data, they have to understand that every contractor creates their their pricing in a different way. There are tools out there that can standardize it. Like ProPricer, for example. Exactly. But often the government mandates a specific format for contractor cost proposals. What the government should understand is anything under other than contractor format is a burden for those contractors. And they're trying to cram the way that they think about the creation of a cost proposal into that government format. And it can actually make it harder for the government to evaluate. I know getting getting a different format from each contractor is a mess to evaluate, but also getting a standard format that has things crammed into it that don't make sense because the standard format doesn't fit the way that all these contractors do it, that can also be a burden on the government. And so as a contracting officer, I asked you for this, but because you had to shoehorn that into my little spreadsheet, I ended up – it ends up looking like that, and, and now we're not on right, the same Right, because your spreadsheet may make sense for how you think things are priced, but in this case, that's not how they're priced, so, that, so it can make it harder. But I understand why the government has a need to – to have a common format so that they're looking at the same thing each time they evaluate. Another thing government should understand is that new entrants to the government market are not used to providing this level of detail. And if you're dealing with small businesses, even if they've been in the government market, they may not have the ability to provide tons of detail on their, on their costs. They, they just haven't, they don't have the, they're not mature enough to collect them in a way that supports all of the stuff that the government sometimes asks for. And, and the part that scares me is that they may not know that they're doing it wrong. And so what I mean by that is just because they certified it, it's possible that you, you believe something deeply and profoundly and you're still wrong. <laughs> and so when it, and I'm raising my hand because I had a company, one of our contracts as a contracting officer, by the time we got to year four, we all thought it was right. They thought it was right. They certified to it. It sounded like it made sense. But when we cracked open the numbers, you know, four years later, it was off and it cost, you know, the program like another $50,000. And well, okay. In the big picture, that's not that big of it, but you get the point. It's like, we all thought we were right. <laughs> and that happens when you don't really understand this stuff. And that's yeah. why it's such a, a nuanced skill. Yeah. Which is why the government asks for lots of data because they want to make sure that it's all right. But it's easy to accidentally end up with a thousand page cost volume. And that can be a problem because then you have to review all of that. You, as the contracting officer, may say, Yes, I need all this data in, in order to determine a fair and reasonable price. But then you get five proposals, and each of them is over a thousand pages that someone now has to look at to make sure it's all right because you asked for it. And I understand that it can be difficult to imagine the ramifications of what you're asking for. 
But until you're that CEO like like me where you, you end up with multiple cost proposals where if you stacked them on end, each one of them is taller than you, until that happens to you, you may not understand what you've done to industry by asking for tons of data in the same data in a ton of different formats. That happens all the time. Yes, we want this in government fiscal year. We want it in contractor fiscal year. We want it in calendar year. So that could be three different sets of tables all telling you the same data. And then when you print them out, it's just out of control. <laughs> and that, that moves us right to why should industry care? It's very expensive and time-consuming to price these large efforts and provide all those details and print all that stuff out. It's very expensive and time-consuming to collect costs in a manner that, that supports government requ- requirements in order to actually say, this is my fringe benefit rate. This is – one overhead pool. This is another overhead pool. It takes people and time and energy. It takes accounting people to do this. Now, all of that cost gets passed on to the government, either directly or indirectly. So true. It's it's not like they're spending profit to do that kind of thing. But my point is you have to prepare to do that. In order to be able to present these costs in a manner that will pass muster, you have to be working it ahead of time. You have to be thinking about these things. And more importantly, in order to create a cost proposal that can be evaluated as fair and reasonable in a competition, you have to put the time and energy into it. And that time and energy happens during the proposal writing phase. So in a very, very condensed period of time, you have to do a whole lot of work. And when the requirements are for you know what ends up to be a six-foot stack of paper, you better have prepared for it because if you've figure out at, at midnight the night before it's due that now it's time to press print, you could be in trouble. And this is a – what popped in my head was the episode we had with uh, Wendy Freeman where she talked about the difference between preparation and planning on proposals. And preparation is what we're talking about is can you do all this stuff? When the RFP drops, do you already have the ability to collect all this information and collect all these numbers and be able to crank out that proposal? And And the reason that's a big deal is that if you don't, it, it, it's kind of it's kind of too late to prepare at that point if you haven't thought through these things. This is one of those things that punishes people for not being proactive. If you haven't at least thought through how you're going to manage your cost pools, if you if you don't know how to, get, for example, and again, I pick because this pro price resolves a lot of these problems. I'm not trying to to thump the, the desk too loud, but that's exactly what this does. Is the idea of can we be proactive and understand how do we spin this big proposal from a pricing perspective within the proposal window we have. And I, a reason I see this is that I didn't realize it from the government side, but on the industry side in particular, some of the smaller companies, they're not thinking of this until like three weeks, seriously, three weeks into a four week proposal. Then the pricer comes in and says, okay, let's, let's, you know, pull these out. And it, you, oh. <laughs> yeah, and I'll, I'll even stretch that out, Kevin. Months or years before the proposal. One thing I haven't talked enough about here is the government expects that industry will have approved rates, approved indirect rates, improved overhead, GNA, that kind of thing, and approved systems, an approved accounting system, an approved procurement system, all those kind of things. It can be very difficult to actually get a government agency to approve your rates and systems. So if you are entering a competition where it says you must have approved rates and systems to compete, if you haven't planned far ahead, you may not be able to convince them that your price is fair and reasonable. And I, most of those RFPs always say you have to have approved systems or you have to prove to us that it's all fair and reasonable. Well, 
if you don't have that government agency stamp of approval on your rates and systems, then that's even more paperwork. That's even more justification that you're going to have to submit to prove to the government that, it, that it's all right. So you have to plan for it. Okay, time to wrap this up, Kevin. My big takeaways, first one is be prepared to prove it is the concept to wrap your head around. Is it, this, this is so different than, than how the commercial market works of, of here's the price, competition or com either competition proved it or just the fact that you, you believe me because you're willing to pay this for it. But being prepared to prove what is your overhead rate? What is your material handling rate? Who, who else would you have to prove that to other than the government? Right? <laughs> the second one is that there's a, there's a reason this, there's a whole industry behind government pricing. This stuff is complicated. But communication helps so much. An example of that was the government contract pricing summit where we spoke over the summer. Is There was an, a, a scenario where government and industry pricers were in the room seeing, wow, we don't understand a lot of this stuff. This, this communication helps with a lot of these things. And the last thing we didn't really talk about, but specifically in, in this episode, but understand the importance of how much time this takes in the proposal process. As a government person, I had no clue of how – it could take you – technically, it only takes you two days, but it's because you work two 24-hour days. <laughs> That's kind of how it plays <laughs> two out. Two days. Ha, ha. Yeah. I would laugff at that. It always well, takes – the pricers would tell you they always get the pricing. They always get the inputs for pricing at the very last minute. Everyone else sees that the due date is the 30th of the month, so they think that they can work until the 29th and then submit it. And so that's when the pricing people get the final stuff, and then they end up working those two days straight or 24 hours straight trying to put together all the pieces, and they always find out that there's something missing. <laughs> yeah, so that this, is a, this is something I had no context of as a CEO of, of how big of an impact it has and, and how, you know, if it's a, for example, if it's a cost-type contract, maybe 30 days is not enough. Ask, by the way, ask industry. But I say, it, it may be, I don't know, but that, that's what I mean. It's like I didn't have any idea. Yeah, my last point would be, Yes, contractors, you have to provide everything and prove it. And the most fun part is if you get it wrong, even if you meant to get it right, there could be penalties. <laughs> I there meant to get it right. There could be penalties later on. There's a, there's a term called defective pricing where if you had some things wrong in how you're calculating it, you may have to pay back those costs and penalties years later. Yeah, we actually have that podcast about that. All right, that's enough on pricing for today. I'll talk to you later, Kevin. See you, Paul. Woo, there you go. Another episode of the Contracting Officer Podcast. Check us out on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also join us in the Government Contracting Network group on Facebook. If you have a topic you'd like to hear about, send it to me at paul at contractingofficerpodcast.com. Thanks for joining us. Hey.